Thanks, Tom. I know. I was going to use my seat, but apparently I just want to walk around, so thank you. Morning, guys. You know, uh, just thinking about Mary, I've been um, in this church for like 28 years, I guess. Um, like 20 years ago, she officially retired from her position in the office. Um, and in doing that at age probably 80, I suppose, she came up with a bucket list of things that she wanted to accomplish before she died. And as a 13-year-old, I was inspired by her tenacity for life. It was, I believe she rollerbladed for the first time at like 82 fly fished in that time frame. She was a deckhand on a seaworthy schooner for like three or four days. I'm still waiting for her to skydive because I remember that one. Skydive? Well, we'll have to find out. There you go. Incredible. Sweet. Well, my name is Evan Hayes, if I haven't met you. Um, I'm one of the pastors with Rimrock Downtown. Um, you know, over the last six months, we've been walking through the book of Mark. Um, looking specifically at Jesus' ministry. Um, just a reminder, this is a historical fact. It was recorded by eyewitnesses or people that had been there and other people recorded it for them. So what we've been looking at and studying truly occurred. You know, that's how we know about the Civil War. That's how we know about the Roman Empire. That's how we know about Alexander the Great, on and on and on, due to historians recording what they saw. This is historical fact. You know, we're in chapter 12 uh, today, and um, we're at the point in Jesus' ministry where he has entered Jerusalem. In chapter 11, Palm Sunday, it was kind of a triumphant entrance, people laying down their cloaks, praising him, Um, definitely stirred the pot in the eyes of the religious leaders at the time. Um, And we saw in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, and then what we're going to look at tonight, or today, is that he basically took on the hypocrisy of the religious crowd head on. Um, And if you don't think that Jesus has authority over these men's lives, over the world, or over your life, and has a desire to directly tell you the better way to live, and you're going to learn something today. You know, um, there's so many interesting passages that I had to choose from. Um, You got the idea of paying taxes, so be sweet to look at, do we give our money to the federal government? Right, our hard-earned money. Or we could look at the idea of resurrection. Are we married in heaven? Do angels have sex drives, right? Super interesting, but God continually brought me back. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that's interesting. (laughs) You know, I am a bit of a Bible nerd, and so I'll openly admit that. So what he brought me to, for your sake, not mine, is to look at the first commandment. Um, Matthew refers to it as the greatest commandment. So uh, we'll read through it first, so that way you guys understand where we're launching from. Um, Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all, or what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
Then the scribes said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all of your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbors as yourself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any questions. Speaking on Jesus' authority. You know, before we get into this, I got a question for you. How many of you have heard a hundred sermons in your life? Right? Probably a few more. How many of you remember 10% of those sermons? Right? We pretend to be adults, but we're really like seventh graders trapped in these adult bodies. And there's so many shiny things in this room that are catching your eye and mine. You know, the. Uh, Absorption rate, the comprehension rate, when you hear things auditory, is like 10% at max. So I say all this to encourage you, walk away thinking of one thing, just one thing. I don't want you to understand what I've spent hours and hours and hours figuring out. I want you to walk away with the one thing that the Spirit will put on your mind and into your heart. That's how he's worked so often in my life, is that you just feel something sit a little bit differently. You hear a verse just a little bit more powerfully. When that happens, man, zone me out. Focus in on what the Spirit's given you. The church has nothing to do with me, with whoever is up here. The church is a collection of followers of Christ inhabited by the Spirit, being led by God himself. Make sense? All right, so... What I got to say, I guess. Um, we got to first start by looking at context. Um, to really understand truly what's going on in the Bible, you have to understand where it was coming from and what was on the mind of the individual that we're looking at. So let's look at what the scribe asks him. Verse 28, which commandment is first of all? Which commandment is first of all? For, so for the scribe to ask this to the first century Jewish Israelite people there, they had to have been thinking about the 613 laws that God gave them after they left Egypt. But you gotta remember, before they were led out of Egypt, they had zero autonomy and very little control over how they can function day to day. Their time of salvation through the Red Sea and months spent at Mount Sinai with God through Moses was the birth of a nation. The commandments that God gave them established not only their civil, how they treated one another, and their ceremonial laws, how they worshiped God, but even more so, it established the culture out of which the nation would grow and develop. Now, every nation, I believe, goes through this similar process. So most of us in here are Americans. What would you say is the foundation of America? We are a nation of freedom. Right, there's so many laws that we have, but at the heart of it, we see ourselves as a free people. And that's why people come here. And so really, I believe what the scribe is asking Jesus is what is the central piece that makes Israel, not America, Israel, a nation? What is at the core of who we are, what is the most important thing for this nation? You know, and the different groups in Israel during this time had been disputing over this for centuries. The Pharisees, 
Um, the Sadducees, the Zealots, right? All these different groups of common people were always bickering over it. And that's the reason why they asked Jesus because they wanted to see him trip up. The Pharisees believed in the law, but specifically the Sabbath, uh, the idea of being clean, tithing, those were like their hallmark. And when people lived outside of those, they were outcasts. Sadducees believed in the temple. The Zealots believed about fighting with their fists to overthrow the nation that subdued them. You know, it's important to get into a little application now just so I don't lose you too early on. Um, as followers of Jesus, you have been, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been reborn. You have been given rebirth. You've been regenerated spiritually. Out of that rebirth comes a new set of cultures that are being formed that should lead us on how to live in the same way our nation is. You know, and Honestly, the Mosaic Law, uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, it applies to us today as well. You know, the consequences of breaking the law have been removed by Jesus being our high priest and our perfect sacrifice, and many of the rituals doing with diet and how to worship God have been set aside. However, as the followers of the Messiah, the one sent by God to reconcile us back to our creator, the heart of the law, its central facets, still apply to us today. So in the scribe's question, it's as if we are asking a similar question. What is my God-given purpose? You ever asked yourself that, thought about it? Certainly you have. Why was I created? What does God want me to do? What should be the purpose of my life? Heck of a question. I know books and books and books have been written on it. But what we see here is a direct black and white answer from the Messiah himself. So, verse 29. Jesus answers, the first is, Hear, O Israel, O Rimrock, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. You know, I wish I had two hours with you. We could get into the second of the two commandments. Um, but today we're just going to focus on that first one. So what is our primary God-given purpose? You know, it's interesting. In Mark, Jesus starts in a different way than Matthew. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When you look at the Greek or the Aramaic translation of the word one, it means whole or complete, a complete unit. So it's this idea that the commandment, this command, the heart of the law, begins by acknowledging that the God of the Bible is the only God, and he is the completion of all things. So interesting that Jesus starts. When we understand that this is who God is, then. You know, out of this understanding, this, Jesus tells the scribes and us that we are to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That's basically who you are, every aspect of that. You know, heart, we think of emotions, but the heart for um, the first century Jew was more of the, the center of who they were. So it's almost like the heart and the soul are the same the way we see them. It's just the deeper part of who you are. And you understand your mind and the amount of influence that has over you and who you are, and your strength is your body. So it's every piece of who you are has been created to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, every piece of you. 
Now let's make it a little bit more personal. I believe in this, he's saying that you are not defined by your job. Let that sit in. You are not defined because you are a teacher, a construction worker, a doctor, street sweeper, a garbage man, a pastor. It does not sit at the core of who we are. No matter how good you are at your job, no matter how many degrees it took for you to get that job, that is not the core of who you are. You are not defined by your wealth. How big or small your bank account may be, how shiny or scratched up your vehicle is, how many toys you have, how you wish you had these things, that is not the core of who you are. You're not defined by your abilities. The fact that you you can bench press 320 pounds or run a mile in six minutes or that you have an IQ of 140 or you're really good at crocheting, right? It does not matter. Your abilities, they're all good, but that is not the core of who you are. And it goes even further, in my opinion. You are not defined as your role as a mother. That one's harder. As a father, as a son of a certain man or woman, as a daughter of certain parents, you are not defined as your role as a grandma or a grandpa. All these things are good and they are God-given, but they don't lie at the heart of who we are and what we are created to do. So we got to ask the question, why? Why is God worthy of our love from every part of who we are? It's a legitimate question, one that should be explored. You know, I only have, whatever, 15, 20 minutes. So to answer this question is just such a snidbit of the answers that are out there. Man, read your Bible. Spend time alone with God. Find those answers yourself. But starting with the context of the setting, for the people in the first century Israel, they would have been thinking about the commandments that were given by Moses. And all those 613 commandments can kind of be summarized by the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Right? They used to be in schools. You guys mostly probably know a lot of them. When you look at those Ten Commandments, which summarize the other 601 commandments that follow, the first four can be summarized by love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. The second six, last six, can be demonstrated or summarized by the second commandment. Love your neighbors as yourself. Incredible. Right? In Matthew 22, when Jesus is going through the same account, he says, on all, these commandments hang on all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets hang on these commands. Like the entire Old Testament is summarized, in Jesus' opinion, by these two commandments. Incredible. But, you know, to bring it a little bit closer to home for us, because I doubt we care as much about the Old Testament as they did. Um, Not all of us, anyway. And I doubt we care about the law hardly at all in comparison to what they did. So what I want to do is look at who God is to us. Why is he worthy of this type of love? I'll give you three words to describe him. He is our creator, our savior, and our sustainer. Man, these words are so packed full of meaning. 
meditate this on the meditate on this on your way home. He is your creator, your savior, and your sustainer. You know, we'll kind of unpack these a little bit together. Man, we were created. Think about that. You were created. That means you did not exist, but now you do because something else made you. We forget this, but the world we see before us and around us was created from nothing for us. You know, Job puts it this way, Job 12.10. He says that in his hand, God's, is the life of every living thing and the breath of every human being. We forget that we did nothing to bring about today, this moment. How many of you caused the sun to rise today? How many of you put breath in your lungs, blood in your veins? How many of you caused the rain to fall on the crops that turn into the food that nourish our bodies, the trees that grow from which we form our houses that provide us safety? We must remember that today is a gift given directly to us from the hand of our Creator. It's got to be the core of our foundation. God is one. Outside of Him, nothing exists. You know, the second one, He is our Savior. Some of us, most of us, were saved spiritually but we are still being saved today. You know, let's look at the spiritual first. So, I mean, I always go to the Bible, and hopefully this is good for you, but you think about uh, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, core of mankind, decided to rebel against their creator and say, we don't trust you, we trust ourselves. Same thing we've done and continue to do day after day. In that rebellion, they broke the world. Same way we break the world. You know what God's initial reaction was to their sin? It was a promise that he would send a Messiah that would break the evil of this world, that would cover their shame and reunite them to him, to their creator. It's incredible. You know, I really like the way Hebrews 10, 14 through 18 puts it. Um, Oh, and in in your bulletin, Um, There's a leaflet in there that has um, a bunch of verses on it underneath the idea of being created, saved, and sustained. Please uh, just look at that on your own. The Bible is truth. I'm just a broken man up here trying to tell you what I found in it. Hebrews 10, 14 through 18. For by a single sacrifice, one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time. Hear that, perfected for all time. Past, present, future, your sins have been erased and you have been made perfect if you trust in this one sacrifice. And the Spirit, Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. Speaking about Jesus. I will put my laws in their heart, Holy Spirit, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's incredible. The grace of God poured out upon us spiritually is incredible. You know, it's really important to remember this. 
Who brings about your salvation? Who started the process by which we can be saved? It's God. He created us, and then he desired to save us. But what I've found from talking to people and living life, we're not only saved spiritually, often we're saved physically by God who desires to interact with our physical world in order to bring about things differently than the brokenness of this world wants to do. Let me ask you another question. This is one that you can actually answer. How many have been saved from something that they could not save themselves from? Addiction, emotional bondage, anger, bitterness, hopelessness, despair, depression, physical brokenness. How many of you have been saved by something that you could not save yourself from? It's incredible. It's half the people in here. Incredible. I know it feels foolish to raise your hand. It says somewhere in Revelation 20 that um, Satan will be defeated by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the saints. And if you want to know more about how God saved people, pick one of those people that raised their hand and go ask them. Because it's not their story. It's a story about God and who he is. You know, and as I've been thinking through that, it's made it a little bit easier for, you, for me to share my own story with you now. It's like the least favorite thing that I like to do when I'm teaching or preaching is talk about myself. But God has just really put it on my mind and he won't let it go. So, some of you may know this. Last April, like 11 months ago, I was out rock climbing down in Colorado Springs with a good friend, a Bible teacher, um, and the rope wasn't quite as long as the route, which causes issues, right? So as I was being lowered, the rope ran out. Came out of my belayer, the guy who was holding me his device, and I fell 25, 30 feet onto solid rock. Like I said, God is our savior spiritually. I could be in heaven, but also physically. There's a couple things, a lot of things, but a couple things I want to talk about right now that seems to illustrate that God wasn't quite ready to take me home. You know, in that moment when the um, rope released, I was about five, seven feet to the right of my belayer, the guy holding me. He was standing on a small little ledge or dish about 10 feet from the ground. And where I was about to fall was a larger um, solid ledge, or ledge of solid rock. In between that ledge and the ledge I was going to fall on was like five, seven feet of steep vertical wall. Somehow, in the second it took me to fall, he made it over to that ledge and caught me. He doesn't remember it. He remembers the rope going and he remembers me hitting his arms and that's all he can remember. Think through like the physical dynamics, right? How fast does scientists, mathematicians, how fast do objects fall? 9.8 meters per second, right? So that's 30 feet. Is it meters or feet? Feet. So it took me like two two seconds, a second or two to fall. And he was a new climber, so his reaction time in order to realize that I was falling and the fact that he desired to catch a 175-pound man that was plummeting to the earth in his arms, none of that makes sense without some sort of divine interaction. You know, I still hit my head, ended up with a traumatic brain injury, spent some time in the hospital, but I would have died if he would have not been there. You fall 30 feet onto solid concrete rock and you hit your head, game over. 
You know, while I was in the ICU in Colorado Springs, um, they put me in a drug-induced coma for like the first 36 hours. I, only, I don't remember any of this, but this is what I was told. And before they took me off the um, drug-induced coma, they had decided to remove half of my cranium in order to make sure the swelling of the brain would not um, compress against the skull. Um, but before they did that, my wife had signed the release form. They took me off of uh, the drug-induced coma to see how I would react. The neurologist that was there used the word miraculous to describe the rate at which my brain was healing. I was out of the ICU in like 36 hours, out of the hospital in five days, and into a brain recovery unit. Incredible, right? You know, Steve Balsley, former pastor here, used to say from time to time, and it really hit me hard the last three, four months of his life, the day you die is not a day sooner than God allows. For some reason, God didn't want to take me home yet. You know, but he continued to save me when I was home. You know, I used to be a teacher, high school, middle school, um, but like four or five years ago, God, I felt, we felt, my wife and I felt like God called us into owning cabins. Uh, tough move for the ego, right? Being a teacher in front of all these students to making beds and cleaning toilets, but we felt like God wants to do it, and there's been so many good things that came out of it. But what kind of dawned on me as I was preparing for this, thinking about my life and who God is, if I would have been a teacher coming back from that sort of injury, imagine standing in front of a group of middle schoolers that you can't quite remember their names. Man, I used to know it. Or you can't quite come up with commonplace words that everybody else can. Middle schoolers aren't necessarily patient. <laughs> and they certainly wouldn't have allowed me to take the hour to two hour naps right around one o'clock every day in order to reboot. I would have been unemployed, searching for a way to provide for my family, fighting off the depression and the emotional angst that comes with not being able to do what I wanted to do. But I was able to make beds. I was able to talk to customers. I was able to run this business. You know, and you can look at that as coincidence. But as I've thought through this, it seems that God is sovereign. He is in utter control even over time. He is not bound by time. You know, verse Romans 8, 28 it says that for those who love God, you mind put that up, Levi? Romans 8, 28, thank you. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. I used to think that this was simply God pouring his grace upon us when we went through hardships, which it is. It absolutely happens. But from my experience, I realized that God is proactive in the grace that he pours upon us. He understands what's gonna to happen to you tomorrow, in a year, in five years, 10 years, and he prepares us at times with the grace now so that way we can endure well the things that we don't even know are going to occur. That makes sense? He is our savior spiritually, but man, he is savior on such a bigger spectrum in this life here and now as well. You know, last one, he sustains us. He is our sustainer. Sustains means simply that we are given what we need to keep going. 
You know, think about the Spirit. The Spirit has been transplanted into the deepest parts of believers and is their guide to all truth. Through following his guidance and his supernatural presence in our minds and emotions, we have far greater access to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Right? Think about Galatians 5, 22, 23. If you've been in church any time, you've seen these, you kind of zone out when you hear them, we just ramble through them. But the reality is this is what gives us the abundant life here and now. It's what we all desire at the deepest parts of who we are, to feel more loved and joy. Who doesn't want joy or peace when fear comes in? Patience to deal with the hardships, the waiting. And all of these are fruits of the Spirit. It means that the Spirit, if he is within you, he is giving you these things. Let me ask you another question. Hopefully you're feeling a little bit more confident to respond. There we go. How many of you feel this? How many of you have been sustained through the brokenness of this world by God himself? By peace that makes no sense, feeling loved even though everyone has abandoned you, by joy that just does not have any place in your circumstances. It's incredible. Right? We, you, are testimonies to the power of God as our sustainer. You know, for me, like a month out from the hospital, um, the Brain Rehabilitation Center, um, God, I felt like he called me to continue to teach down at Rimrock downtown. Made no sense to me, right? I had and probably still have literal holes in the portion of my brain that control speech, memory, higher functioning, such as like deeper thought, logical train of thought. And so to be called to stand before a group of individuals and tell them what God wants them to know made zero sense to me. You know, I did it because I believe that he was my creator and my savior and my sustainer, and I just felt like I was supposed to follow him. I have no idea how those sermons went. Right? I was blacked out through most of them. They're recorded, so feel free if you want to see how it went, right? I haven't listened to them, heck no. But what I've found is that I think it was more for me than for my congregation. Man, I have eaten wheelbarrows full of blueberries and avocados, right? Mixing them up, omega-3s, right? Help the brain, chia seeds. I've rubbed frankincense all over my body time and time again, right? <laughs> Obviously a lot of oil followers out here. And these things, I think, help. They have to, right? They're supposed to. But what I found caused more dramatic, immediate effect upon my brain and my emotions was the time that I was required to spend in God's word to study and the time spent alone saying, God, I can't do this. It makes no sense you've called me to do this. I trust you and you alone. Through studying his word, I got more clarity of mind than any other time during my recovery. Through spending time with him, meditating, crying out to him, my emotions simmered down and that peace that he promised would settle in. It was as if God physiologically entered my brain and shifted things through his living and active word. You wonder why they say that. 
It's incredible. He's our creator, our savior, and our, disdain, our sustainer. You know, without our creator, today would not exist. None of us would have the opportunity to experience the gifts of breathing, thinking, laughing, fellowshipping with the ones we love. Without the Messiah, we would simply be stuck in the bondage to our own foolishness and the brokenness of this world. Without the Spirit, we would have only our own logic and emotions to guide us through the unknowns of this life. And there are so many unknowns. The things that the God of the Bible has brought and will continue to bring to your life are beyond compare. He is a relational God who desires to interact with you on a daily basis. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible, cover to cover. That's all we see over and over. There is nothing else in this life that is more worthy for us to love with every piece of who we are. You know, just a little bit of time for direct application. What is love? <laughs> it's just a small little piece to bite off, right? What is love? You know, books and books and books and books and songs, right, have all been written about this idea. If you look on Google, all right, good spot to go, love is defined as an intense feeling of deep affection. Those of you that were in love or are in love, does that summarize it for you? This intense, warm feeling inside of you? Heck no, right? I'm, I'm glad she saw you shake your head too, right? It just doesn't make sense. So think about like a husband or a wife, spouses. Think about your spouse. Kids, think about your parents. Parents, think about your kids. How do you know that this person loves you? Is it simply because they told you about the intense feeling of deep infection that they have for you? Heck no. It seems that love is demonstrated and increases, wait, love is shown and grows through the way in which we demonstrate that love. Love is shown by the lover and grows for the person who is loving, being loved, through the way that we act towards the one that we love. So that means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength goes far beyond an intense, ooey-gooey feeling of deep infection for him. It has more to do with the ways in which we demonstrate our love for him. And there could be an entire series built on how do we love God well. You know, what popped in my head was a book um, written like 20 years ago. You guys have probably, a lot of you have read it, um, The Five Love Languages written by a guy named uh, Gary Chapman. Um, you notice there's only four up here. I don't know how we physically love God. <laughs> Maybe someday in heaven you can put your arm around him. I don't know. But the four that I'm looking at, words of affirmation, right? How did we just spend the first half of this service? Singing praises to God, saying, man, you are glorious. Acts of service. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. God gives us so many opportunities to serve other people as a form of loving him. Gift giving, oh man, I would love to spend time talking to you about why you have the money you have. It has nothing to do with you. It has more to do with the gifts that God's given you and the opportunity that he's given you to make that money. But really, I just want to focus a little bit on time. It seems to me that the time is the foundation of all these ways to express love. All the other love languages exist if we are willing to put physical and mental time 
into them. Time and thought. If you want to know what your priorities are, look at how you spend your time. That's key. If you want to know what your priorities are, look at how you spend your time. Physical time, right, what you're out doing, but also time and thought. I understand that sleep and work make up a big portion of who we are. However, we have far more going on in our minds and lives than simply work and sleep. So let me ask you some more questions. This is what happens when you put a teacher up in the pulpit. How do you usually begin your day? First 30 seconds, first five minutes, first half an hour. You may be like me, that we begin our day with a four-year-old in your face wanting to read a book. There's still time during the beginning of your day for just you. Where does your mind go on the way, on the drive to or from work? Could be five minutes, could be half an hour. Where does your mind go during that time? Besides eating, what do you do during your lunch break? You got a half an hour, an hour, apart from work, what do you do with that time? When you're at the gym, you're working out in a class, lifting weights, what are you listening to? What are you thinking about? How do you spend your evenings? How do you decompress at the end of your day? This is what determines your priorities. I know these are just small minutes throughout the day, but these moments, as well as many others, are what determine your priority. To love God with all of your heart, all your soul, mind, and strength requires more than simply going to church once a week. So think about this in a more practical form. If you really wanted to show your kids that you love them, taking them to Disney World once a year should do it, right? It'll carry them through the other 364 days out of the year. Well, maybe you went for a week, so 358 days out of the year. If you really want to show your wife that you love them, going to a movie once a week, once a month should be good, right? It's that quality time spent holding hands. No, it's preposterous, right? So it's the same thing with God. Genuine love requires that we make the object of our love our priority. Genuine love requires that we make the object of our love our priority, and priority stems from time. So let me ask you those questions again. What ways could you start your day to demonstrate that God is your priority? What could you do on your way to work to show God that you love him? In what ways could your lunch break be an expression of your love for your creator? As your day winds down, what would show that God is what you desire most in this life? Remember, how we act in these moments not only shows God our love, but it also increases our love for God. It's a two-way street. In each of these moments, demonstrating your love for God can be done in endless ways. You know, it could be through prayer, just talking to God, listening to God, being quiet before. It could be in study, reading his book or somebody's book that, some, that they wrote about God. It could be praising God through song or through journaling, through words. It could be acts of service. Maybe God's telling you to clean up your kids' toys, right? Or do your wife's dishes, your dishes, right? That your wife made a beautiful meal for. There are so many different ways that we can show God that he is our priority. You know, I, 
I really don't like talking about myself, but God put one more aspect of my story on my mind and heart um, that kind of ties us all together. You know, the last 11 months have been uh, a heck of a journey for me um, in terms of brain recovery and figuring out how to live. And I would say at this point, 99%, clo- close to 99% back to where I used to be in terms of mental uh, capacity. However, what has not gone away is my fatigue. Man, I love napping. <laughs> it's, it's really embarrassing me, for me as a 34-year-old man to openly profess that like napping is like one of my favorite parts of my day. But man, if I do what God has called me to do, what I feel like God's called me to do, study, teach, hang out with people, it wipes me out so quickly. And trust me, this is not an easy battle for me. Specifically this week, last week, it's just, it's a battle that I'm definitely in. But what I've figured out that applies to what we're talking about now is that I'm being forced to learn that if I want to live life well, I must choose to use my time in ways that are truly worthwhile, in ways that God directs me to live. Regardless of the brain injury, that applies. You know, because honestly, I've also realized that I've had a brain injury long before I fell down the rock face. I was born with one. So were you. The Bible calls it the flesh. And the flesh has so many different aspects to it. But man, it constantly deceives you into thinking that you are your top priority and that you will always have more time to accomplish worthwhile things. And the flesh is a liar. Our time is limited. We are only guaranteed this moment. We so often waste our days through the foolish notion that we will always have more time. The reality is that time is one of the most precious gifts given to us and that we are given it for specific reasons. The most important being loving God with every piece of who you are. Even if you live to 100 like Mary, the foundation to loving God well is how you choose to live in this moment. You know, I don't want you to walk away feeling too convicted. A little conviction is good. It's important. That's why the law is there. So I want to remind us that regardless of how we demonstrate our love to God, his love for us will never waver. It's incredible. The one that we are supposed to love with everything we have, his love for us does not fluctuate depending upon our demonstration of love. Romans 5.8, if you mind putting that up, Levi. This summarizes the gospel for me. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, the full expression of God's love, the, the Messiah bringing us back to him had nothing to do with how we were living or how we were acting, how we were pursuing God. His love for us does not waver. God is continually pursuing you, demonstrating his love for you, regardless of how you pursue him. However, when we strive to make him our priority, he pours out his goodness on us a hundredfold. 
the abundant life is up to us in where we place our priorities. God is just waiting to spend time with you, ladies and gentlemen.